welcome to the Digiday Podcast. I'm Kaylee Barber, media editor at Digiday. And I'm Tim Peterson, senior media editor at Digiday. So Tim, you had the conversation this week with Eunice Shin, who is a partner at the strategy consulting firm Profit. And you guys were talking about the state of the entertainment business, which is particularly interesting because you're heading into earnings season. Um, but I wanted to ask, did you guys get into the topic at all of streaming subscriber churn? Yeah, yeah. Eunice talks about you know, churn being the metric that she's paying the most attention to um, heading into earnings. Um, and for good reason, you know, coming you know in the i guess first phase of the pandemic it was all about streaming subscriber growth and then in 2021 uh that started to really slow and for some stall in netflix's case you know they lost subscribers um in two straight quarters last year and so now with you know netflix adding an ad supported tier disney plus adding an ad supported tier uh the question is just how many of these subscribers can the services keep um and you know to what extent do the ad supported tiers help them to keep those subscribers right and i know like programming and and having a lot of options to watch is probably a key uh, factor in retention, but also a lot of streamers have been dealing with programming budget constraints given the economic downturn. Did you guys talk at all about the impact on retention from that angle? Uh, we talk a, a bit about it because Eunice, you know, mentions how Netflix has this huge library and how valuable that can be in retaining subscribers because if you know, people are going to be paying. 10 15 dollars a month for a service they want to make sure they have something to watch anytime they fire it up got it all right well i'll let you guys get into it sounds like a good conversation yeah it's a fun one thanks Kayla. thanks tim Eunice welcome to the digital podcast thanks for joining us hi tim happy to be here Eunice, you are someone that i like to talk to anytime i'm trying to wrap my head around what's going on in the entertainment industry which is kind of all the time because it's there's always plenty of stuff going on. But especially right now, start of the year, um, given everything that you know went on in streaming last year, Bob Iger returning to Disney, um, the challenges on the traditional TV side of things coming to a head, and now we're so we're talking day before Netflix reports its fourth quarter earnings. So we're heading into earning season mm-hmm. and I'm trying to you know suss out like what are the metrics everyone's going to be really eyeing cuz you know a year ago I think the the metric across the board everyone was looking at was subscribers I don't feel like that's the metric du jour necessarily anymore what are you looking mm-hmm. at mm-hmm. this earning season I still think growth is going to be a measure right a metric that people are going to care about that the street's going to care about the, however, the metric that I'm mostly watching is the churn rate, because if you think about all of these streamers as they've launched, you know, most of them during the pandemic, but, you know, obviously with Netflix years before that, um, as people have spent a lot of money to acquire these customers, meaning not just marketing dollars, but content dollars and content investments into that to be able to lure people onto those platforms, how are they doing in keeping them? Right. And I think that as much as you think about subscriber growth, if your churn number is high, it's like one step forward, two steps back. So and in a world where economic uncertainties still exist, uh, where the quality of content continues to be kind of hits based and a lot of bombs, 
how are we thinking about churn and how are these streaming platforms keeping the customers they've worked so hard to to gain in an increasingly competitive and price competitive world? And churn feels like I'm trying to think of companies that actually break out their churn rates. I feel like they generally like hide that information. Mm. I think that they have been reporting on it. I mean, I've seen the churn numbers come out. Um, and it's, you know, and that was part of one, one of the biggest issues with the Netflix, the kind of the, the whole thing that, that started to break the camel's back a little bit last this past year is when Netflix talked about slowing growth. One of their elements was that their churn, it was significant and people were unsubscribing. And so as these substreaming services increase prices, as there's more competitors around and people are more selective with you know, which streamers are in their wallets that you're going to see people playing a little bit with subscribing when the content is there and and churning when it's not. I think HBO Max is a perfect example of, you know, when euphoria is over, people will unsubscribe. When White Lotus comes back on, then they subscribe and then they unsubscribe. Same thing will happen um, when succession comes back on. So you have a, a world where people may be going for certain types of content Yellowstone, right? I mean, Peacock, I I think that if you look at the rise of Peacock, a lot of it has to do with people streaming Yellowstone. And once the season is over, you're going to see churn. So in these moments where you have a lot of watch time, a lot of people coming onto the platform and watching, how are you leveraging those moments to um, latch them onto other shows and continue to go, right? And to continue to watch, um, and I think that's been Netflix's strategy this whole time about giving you a sense of volume, right? So once you're watching Emily in Paris, um, and then kind of what's next and what gets served up to you is super important to know, am I going to come back tomorrow? Or am I going to feel like I don't need this streaming platform this month? And going to be discretionary in how I make those choices. And um, I, I think that's what makes it really difficult on these month-to-month plans. As you allude to, churn is kind of a part of the business. The, the idea of churn rates being 0%, as nice as I'm sure that would be for the streaming services, I don't imagine that's ever really viable. Is there a sweet spot in terms of the range of like what a good churn rate is versus a bad churn rate or a too high churn mm-hmm. rate? I mean, I think every everyone's always been trying to get it at less than 5%. I mean, that's the ideal state. I think if you think back, and, and these are all new consumer behaviors, right? So if you think back to cable, when everyone had cable, such a pain to disconnect cable, right? And so you may not be watching something but you just keep your cable subscription and you keep it around, right? Because number one, it's a pain to, you know, to shut it down, but then it's not so easy to turn it back on, right? You got to get the box. You got to get the cable guy to come out. It wasn't as convenient as today when you hit unsubscribe, right? On your fingers, with your fingers, right? On your phone, how easy it is to be able to do that. I think the fact that you there is that ease of access and control has created various consumer behaviors. And I, I would say that it's still evolving. I don't think we've settled into like a standard streaming consumptive behavior pattern yet. I think it's still shifting and changing because of the of the subscribe, you know, of this of the platforms that exist out there and of the way consumers are are engaging with it. So if you look at the average person, 
Where are they watching? You know, when do they turn it on? Who do they open first? How long are they spending time scrolling to find what to watch? When do they abandon? When do they go to the next? Right? All of these types of behaviors, they may feel like channel surfing, but from a standpoint of what that means to the consumer, the patience, the understanding or expectations and frustrations in that whole consumer behavior is so important to watch. And that's the thing, if you're a platform, right, and you're thinking about churn and anticipating that, how are you looking at your existing platform metrics to be able to understand what might be indicative of that, right? And how do you catch people and, and get them a little bit more sticky to the platform? And it has to do with content, you know, and the content right. that resonates with you. Although it seems like some of the platforms or the streaming services were making the argument Short content, but also if we get an ad supported tier in there, that's really going to help us keep people around. But what's interesting about that, I mean, we'll, by the time this episode goes out, maybe we'll have a sense of it with Netflix's numbers, depending on to what extent they break out ad supported you know, subscribers. But there was a study that Kantar released today where they said they found that um, ad supported streaming subscribers are more likely to churn, to cancel subscriptions than um, ad-free, you know, streaming subscribers, which I thought was really interesting because then it's, you know, all, you have all of these, you have Netflix, Disney Plus joining HBO Max and Paramount Plus and Peacock and Hulu with having ad-supported tiers with an eye towards, okay, well, if people, if they aren't willing to pay for HBO Max anymore because HBO Max is now $16 a month. Maybe they'll sign up for the ad-supported tier, which I think is like $10 mm -hmm. a month. Um, but based on this Kantar research, it seems like, well, if they sign up for that ad-supported tier, they may be more likely to cancel that subscription next month than if they had stayed at that on the $16 ad-free tier. What do you mm -hmm. make of that mm -hmm. stuff? Because it, it kind of blew my mind. Yeah, it's really interesting. I mean, talk about this past year of being the ad model being kind of looked at as the savior for some of these streaming platforms, right? And HBO Max had planned that a while ago, but with Netflix and Disney Plus, I think it becomes super interesting. I think it, it the, the, the contradiction or perhaps the perceived contradiction in that latest report has to do with consumer expectations around the ads experience. So if you're used to watching Netflix in an uninterrupted way, that's what you're kind of used to. But but if you look at YouTube as an example, there is no, right? Like, an, and even from uh, the standpoint of watch time, YouTube is like considered one of the number one streaming platforms in the world. People stream content there all the time and they're doing, and most of those people are doing it in an ad, ads-based way. And what's interesting is when you see maybe some of those streamer subscriber numbers dipping or slowing their growth, YouTube continuously grows. So like if I, if I look at that number, then like how do you make sense of that? And I think it's the consumer expectation. I know that I'm, when I'm streaming YouTube and if I haven't signed up for the premium subscription, that I'm going to be served ads. And I'm okay with that because I, I assume that's part of the, expect, of the experience. Um, I might not like it, but I'm willing to do it because I have access to this content that I love and I'm willing to sit through it. And I think that uh, maybe the ads meet me in a way that makes sense. Where I will tell you, like in my experience with Hulu as an example, sometimes that ads experience is pretty rough. 
right? You're getting served. Like it's like seven ads. You have to sit through a carousel of seven ads, right? And to sit there and have to watch it. And then the frequency of those ads becomes kind of questionable. I think for any of us who work in the ads industry, you're like, why are they serving me the same ad, you know, 10 times within this one hour of watching the show? And so I think it just becomes a little bit of a frustrating ads experience and watch experience. So I think it's really kind of setting expectations about what that experience is going to be like. And at the end of the day, if the difference is $5, am I willing to pay $5 more? You know, it's, it's interesting with like how we think about the value of that. And we do these types of pricing elasticity studies all the time to be able to say, hey, will they say that $5, an incremental $5 is worth it to not have to sit through this type of an experience? Or, you know what, the whole service is not worth it. I'm going to back away from it. So I think it just really becomes super interesting as we look at um, not just what consumers find acceptable, but also what they evolve and, and, and kind of expect out of these platforms and what they're willing to pay for, what they're not willing to pay for. And I guess it also depends on how much the individual streaming services want to push the ad-supported series. Because like you know, Hulu, you mentioned Hulu is always the one that gets cited for not having the greatest ad experience in terms of frequency management. But it's also the one that seems to have been the most successful when it comes to the ad-supported side. Because Hulu has an ad-free tier, but most, I think it's like two-thirds of subscribers are on the ad-supported tier. Um, so Hulu's getting... I mean, Hulu ends up making more money per subscriber because they're still getting a you know smaller monthly subscription fee out of people, but still a monthly subscription fee plus the ad revenue, which kind of doesn't have a ceiling mm-hmm, depending mm-hmm. on viewership. But I mean, Netflix, and I'm more familiar with how things have been going with Netflix so far than Disney Plus. Disney Plus, I haven't heard as much. It also just launched a little over a month ago, the ad sports here. But like Netflix, we reported last month that the viewership wasn't meeting advertiser expectations and so it was letting advertisers take their money back because it wasn't there but i mean part of the criticism from the agency execs i talked to for that piece was netflix hasn't really marketed this ad supported tier so like on the one hand they're not holding the uh, under delivery against netflix as much because they felt like it's too early to you know write off Netflix's ad supported tier. On the other hand, they're just like, well, how much does is Netflix really going to try to build this up? And I guess that's going to be a big question mm-hmm, across mm-hmm. the board this year, right? Yeah, absolutely. And if you think about that consumer behavior expectation as an advertiser, I want to meet my consumer when they're in a happy place, right? Like I want to make sure that that ads experience is great. And because the chances of them watching that full ad, of them engaging with that ad, for there to be brand recall, like the whole reason why you spend those dollars in media in the first place, you want it to be effective and efficient. And so I think that's going to be really interesting to to know, right? If you're not getting people lured in and setting expectations that this is what's what the value exchange is, right? There's a mutual value exchange that consumers are willing to make the trade-offs for, I think that that's really important to be able to get that right. Otherwise, you're going to have a lot of those media planners and buyers be skeptical about even not just reaching those audiences, but reaching them in a positive way. Right. And then I guess there's also, you know, still that competition from 
there's the competition from traditional TV. People are still, you know, watching that, um, especially if it's, you know, sports. But and then there's the competition. You mentioned YouTube. There's TikTok. But then there's also the free ad supported streaming TV services, uh, Roku Channel, Pluto TV, Samsung TV Plus, where I mean, those have been around for a while now. It feels like, you know, they should be fairly mature and they have you know matured, but it feels like they're just starting to hit a point where they're getting more dangerous for like the broader ad market, more dangerous in terms of like really being able to steal potentially like some viewership mm. away from other services. Like there was um, Vulture did a Q&A with John Landgraf from FH Networks last week, mid-January. And in it, he talks about, I think the stat he says is 80% of the time people are looking for passive programming, something that they can just throw on while they're doing something else. And 20% of the time they're really hunting around for something specific to watch. And so he was using that to make the case for traditional TV, but that's also the case for the fast services too. And so given the economy, given the fact that like you have a lot of pretty popular old TV shows on these fast services, I'm pretty curious to see like if the fast services eat into the market to a different degree this year than they have in recent years. Because it feels like in recent years, they've been more of a sideshow mm -hmm. or like still we're getting their legs under them. Mm -hmm. um, I don't know if this is throwing too strong of a dagger, but I think the fast services are only resonating with a certain amount of generations in our population. It's, it, I, I think if you were to look at Gen Z behaviors, none of them are turning on Pluto okay. to watch, right? Old reruns of Gilligan's Island or whatever it may be running, right? That that, that type of content doesn't resonate. I was flab like, sorry, this is moving away from fast, but I was flabbergasted when I was, I saw like, uh, Night Court, the new Night Court version on NBC coming out where it's like the judge's daughter or something like that. And I saw a commercial for that and I was like, are you kidding me? Who's watching this stuff? But I think that what's happening is that that model for fast programming is still reaching out to those legacy TV buyers, right? People who grew up in that kind of legacy TV model. And, and that's just my humble opinion on that. Uh, you know, still there's still a lot of people who are watching linear um, and cable, but in, in the latest Nielsen numbers, if you looked at the ages, it's pretty bonkers, right? And mm -hmm. I think I saw something to the nature of like during prime time, you know, pretty much four hundred thousand, um, you know, U.S. audiences in Gen Z are watching. Only four hundred thousand, right? It's not a lot of people. You could get 400,000 people on one Twitch stream, right? For With like a mid-level streamer. It's, it's pretty crazy how low those numbers are in the legacy linear way. Um, and so I think the last holdout is sports. And you're seeing all the streamers moving towards that, right? Every single streamer is thinking about that. And I think Amazon saw a lift with... Thursday Night Football this past year with YouTube doing the latest NFL Sunday ticket deal with, uh, I just saw today, HBO Max with the U.S. Women's National Team, um, you know, coverage. Uh, I think that you're going to see these streamers moving into the sports realm pretty quickly. 
Um, and it's so interesting because you have a lot of people who are like, never live. We're never going to go live. And then they are. And people who are saying, we'll never go ads, but they are. We'll never do sports, but they are because they have to evolve with where the consumer expectations are and the consumer demand is. I think this, if the streamers now start to win over all the ma- massive sporting rights, it, it's, it's, it's game over. I, I really think it's, it's the time where if you are an ad buyer, you're not going to find your audiences. Those Super Bowl moments are going to be left to the Super Bowl. Where else are you going to find those types of TV moments that are still resonating in, in the heart of culture? Um, that's the big shift that Gen Z has made. And yes, absolutely, Gen Z may be wanting to turn on something with background noise too, but they're not turning on old TV. And it's interesting, like you mentioned how, you know, now YouTube, you know, just or Google for YouTube secured NFL Sunday ticket rights. Um, Amazon had, you know, just did their first full season of Thursday Night Football. And, you know, they colored positively of, you know, more younger viewers, you know, watched than when it was on traditional. Still fewer people watched, you know, on Amazon than when Fox had Thursday Night Football the year before. But then what's interesting, like Apple has Major League Soccer next year. They had some Major League Baseball games last year. I think um, NBC with Peacock also had some Major League Baseball games last year. But then you have all of the traditional TV NFL rights holders. Mm-hmm. And the last renewal round, one of the big stories was them securing the streaming rights. But I remember like after that, right after all those deals were announced, talking to some people and just being like, okay, they secured the rights, but when are they actually going to take advantage of those streaming rights? Basically, like at what point does Disney or CBS or NBC or Fox say, okay, we're going to allow people to watch games without a pay TV subscription or through a standalone streaming service? And to my knowledge or to my recollection, none of them have, which seems... Like maybe that'll change now that Amazon's coming off the Thursday night football season and YouTube getting the NFL Sunday ticket deal. But then there's the other side of it of with streaming shifting from, you know, the focus around subscribers and subscriber growth, especially in you know the first year or two of the pandemic to last year, the conversation really turning towards profitability and how much money these companies are sinking into streaming. And at what point can they really expect to get that money back and turn a profit? I wonder if that makes the traditional TV network owners more protective of keeping the NFL on traditional TV because they have the dual revenue stream there. There's just like more money for them to be made, at least in the short term there than taking kind of, you know, potentially taking a loss in the short term if they do the standalone streaming things. What are your thoughts? Yeah. I mean, I think that you're telling the story of a torn boardroom, right? Because absolutely they want to hold on to the old. They want to hold on to the lucrative media deals um, and they don't want to take the risks. But at the same time, most of these companies are public organizations, right? Public firms where you have the pressures of Wall Street saying, pick one, pick your lane and and and, and commit to it and invest in it and, and show us results. And I think because of those market demands, it's making it harder and harder for these bold rooms to kind of hold on to the old. So I think that they're going to have to really think about the economics around it. 
Do you do it where it's a pay-per-view, right? Like, you know, like a pay-per-access type of a thing where you're getting um, access to it and then you are really anchoring in on those those ad advertising um, arrangements, right? Like how are you monetizing in an ads model around maybe some of those live sporting moments where it's made for those commercial breaks and it's made for uh, that type of an experience and where consumers and fans are kind of expecting that uh, type of an experience. And then how do you bring them on, have them pay some money for that and then lure them back onto that streaming service and to make that sticky? Or obviously like what, you know, the other league, the leagues have tried to do with like the NBA pass or the, you know, kind of the, the add-on services, by the way, we're moving into a world quickly of aggregation again, right? It, you know, like everything we saw kind of in, in the cable world before, uh, separating it all and then aggregating. Now I think we're going to find ourselves in a streaming aggregation world where there's going to be, how do we how do we show incremental value to consumers by signing up for maybe something a little bit more expensive, but that gets you more? And I think those companies that are primed to do that extremely well as, as Disney, for one example, right? Or if you look at any of the other kind of larger conglomerates who have multiple um, entertainment assets underneath them, Comcast, Disney, you know, you're going to see these bigger players, Viacom, Paramount, trying to vie for that. They're also looking at how they can sell across a portfolio. So if you go into arrangement and if you are Coca-Cola and you are going into an arrangement with you know, the Walt Disney Company, and there's an arrangement. And this is this is not a new playbook. This has existed for a while. You buy and you become the official beverage, you know, company for the Walt Disney theme parks and resorts. But also with that, there's some guaranteed media buys, media placements. And this kind of overall portfolio arrangement, portfolio buy, I think we're going to start to see more and more of that um, and value placed upon that. And so those types of of uh, I don't know, you know, strategic relationships are going to really, I think, drive the way that people start to move and shake. And certainly when you think about sports uh, and these sports rights and how people are starting to monetize and these platforms are going to start to monetize against them, I think it's going to be a great place to watch. But it's not going to be just like a standard media rights deal. There, There's a lot of kind of value exchange that's going to be interwoven into that, that's going to make it even more complex. And honestly, makes it really difficult for the linear, traditional linear guys to be competitive. Mm-hmm. Doesn't it make it also difficult for Netflix? Because like, I mean, as you mentioned, we're in this bundling era, re, the rebundling mm-hmm, era. And, mm-hmm. you know, even John Stanky, who, you know, when he owned you know, Warner Media like pretty soon after they announced HBO Max said like our aim is to eventually be the aggregator I think this is all cycling back towards aggregation streaming is going to look like the pay TV bundle and we want to be the aggregators and he seems to be proving right like Disney as you mentioned they have the Disney plus ESPN plus Hulu bundle Um, Warner Brothers Discovery is going to be bundling HBO Max and Discovery Mm -hmm. plus um paramount is you know kind of bundling you know they've been doing it kind of dipping their toes into you know bundling paramount plus and showtime and bet but who can netflix bundle with like netflix is kind of seems to just be out there on their own they are and i think that they have enjoyed being in that leadership kind of pole position for a while 
But the reason why the others are bundling is so that they can compete against Netflix, to compete against that volume of content, to compete against the um, viewership and, and the people that are, um, you know, that Netflix had, you know, a long run by themselves for a while to take that advantage. But we're seeing that the 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 lead position that Netflix has against the other streamers, it's it's coming down, right? It's it's shortening. So I think uh, I think Disney's going to give them a run for their money. I think uh, Discovery Warner Brothers is hoping to. I think that they just are challenged. The biggest thing, Tim, and this is fascinating for me as someone who's been a student of the industry and passionate about this, the human nature element of all of this is the most fascinating thing for me because I think the biggest challenge for any of these companies is a, is a human challenge. A lot of the ways that these companies were organized and incented are not built in such a way that makes the bundle successful for them internally. They have competing agendas. They may have different divisions where they roll up to, revenue that rolls up in different ways, right? And if you take the look of a traditional media and entertainment company, I mean, this is like, again, people would be worldwide entertain film, you know, and the film folks wouldn't talk to the TV folks, right? And wouldn't even share assets with the TV folks and the TV would take it. And then there's worldwide and there'd be domestic and there'd be international and then to pay and, and kind of all of these various windows, these windows were never worked, built to be incented to support each other. And I think you still have a little bit of these fiefdoms and organizations and people where it's tough, right? So like, if you may be uh, an organization like Viacom, you still are trying to make your cable networks win, but at the same time, you're still trying to get Paramount Plus to be successful. Those are competing agendas. And unless you have someone at the top who's really saying, we shall work together and we shall break down some of these organizational walls and, and incent for success for everyone, it's going to be an impediment. And I think if you look at any organization, whether it's a tech company like Amazon, or if you look at an entertainment company you know, like NBC Universal, these fiefdoms exist, and it makes a challenge for for their for folks to move faster um, and to move faster. Netflix has that advantage in that they were built to be just Netflix. They don't have that history, that heritage that they have to fight. So, and they don't have a competing agenda. It's grow Netflix, right? Make make Netflix ubiquitous increase watch time. Their addressable market is, you know, it's kind of limited. So how can they grow more with the people who are going to subscribe? How are they going to go after people who don't want to subscribe, but willing to pay for an ad-based model? And how do they get people to stay sticky onto that? That's the challenge that Netflix has, uh, while others are kind of coming and vying for them. And again, I wouldn't count out YouTube from that standpoint as well, because again, in, in a world where Gen Z is becoming the powerhouse of influence. You got to look at where Gen Z is spending their time. What talent, what content are they watching? Where are they, where are they, you know, where are they giving their, not just their time, but their, their money? And uh, where's that love being built? You know, I, I think that, that that's the other element of the business that I'm in, that we're constantly studying Gen Z and the things that matter to them and where they're, um, and just the, the amount of influence they have in, in across all generations, it's kind of bonkers, right? They're pushing millennial trends. They impact Gen X. They have access to Gen X wallets for the most part, right? Their parents. 
Um, and then in five years time, they're all going to be adults. You know, in five years time, the oldest Gen Z will be in their 30s. So it's coming fast and furious. So I think for all of these platforms, they got to be thinking about how do they endure love with Gen Z and looking at how they're making some of those decisions and where they're finding, you know, spending their time. So th- there's just so many moving factors, you know, that come to bear as we think about just, you know, these tensions. But you also have the, these key decision makers who are, you know, old school media guys who don't necessarily understand how, how today's consumers are engaging with content and what type of content. What you were saying around fiefdoms and, and the fiefdoms inside these like, you know, media and entertainment conglomerates, does that mean that, you know, those reorgs in fall 2020 when like that was when Disney created uh, the media mm-hmm, and entertainment mm-hmm. division under Kareem Daniel, does that mean like all those streaming? Because re- I love the idea behind those reorgs because NBCU also did it um, and Warner Brothers, I think, was another one mm-hmm, or Warner mm-hmm, Media, mm-hmm. but was kind of create this hub and spoke and we have kind of the decision makers in the center and basically anyone can be creating a show or a movie and it can kind of go anywhere. It's not going to be siloed like things were traditionally or streaming, you know, going to get pushed off to the side like things were traditionally. Does that, but you mentioned the fiefdoms still exist and, and obviously Disney under Bob Iger now is undoing that reorganization. Mm. Yeah, I think the intention was for it to work in theory, but I don't necessarily know if they moved and changed people, right? And that's the fascinating element of it. You have people who have who spent their entire lives in kind of in certain roles, reporting into certain ways, creative decisions were trusted in a certain way. And I think when when a lot of these companies tried to pivot from being a creative studio to a tech platform, some of the art got lost along the way and some of the ways that that you bring that art to life and distribute that art got lost along the way too. And it's not to say that those were wrong decisions to make. I 100% believe that the studios had to evolve and transform, but they still are transforming. I think what's, and you know, if I look at Warner Brothers today, I mean, they were a client of mine for a really long time. And there's a part of my heart that breaks to see the way that things have shifted for them, right? And changed for them. With all the cost cut in under, like, since the discovery mm-hmm, merger. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And at the heart of where content and creativity lied and, and what HBO stood for and what HBO Max tried to do, there's a lot of things that have shifted from where it was before, right? If you think about kind of the prestige that HBO has always held in the cable world. And if you think about the prestige that Discovery had in the cable world, they were at different levels. And when you thought about the type of talent that would go to HBO and the type of talent that would go to Discovery, it's not that one is better than the other. It was just considered very different, right? Where you where you go for these types of, of these, uh, you know, studios and creatives that you want to be able to work with. And now with that coming together, you're losing some of that magic. Um, and I think that you're losing some of the magic of what HBO had and what Warner Brothers had. Um, I, I, You know, David Zaslav, he, he's out to make it right. And he has insane pressures, insane debt to deal with. So he's trying to right the ship. But I think it's it's not so easy by making it all discovery. 
right? Uh, like it just, although, yeah. What's What's interesting about that is like, Warner Brothers Discovery stock has been up so far this year. I mean, granted, we're only a few weeks into 2023, but like investors like the cost cutting. I guess a lot of that has to do with fears around the economy, how things are Mm going to go. The fact that like it seems like more and more just about every company is going to have to be, you know, doing cost. Mm -hmm. Microsoft just announced, Mm -hmm. you know, massive layoffs Mm -hmm. today. Um, Amazon's in the process of laying off 18,000 people. and then again, like going back to streaming, being in this, I think Lucas Shaw at Bloomberg was the one who coined it like the austerity era. And, um, you know, there have been production executives I talked to late last year who talked about, yeah, it's we're, we're in a correction um, right now in terms of the costs that have, you know, gone into programming and the willingness of these you know, streaming services to invest as much as they had historically to grow these businesses, given that you know, maybe the the revenues they expected to be there aren't going to be there or aren't going to be there under the same timeline they may have expected them to be there. I think what's pretty fascinating is that if you look back two years ago when everyone was just on this content buying spree, right? And if you were a content production uh, studio, I mean, you were having the time of your life because everything was being <laughs> greenlit, right? Everything was being greenlit and, and produced but everyone knew it was going to come to an end. No one thought this was going to that ride was going to go for a while. So everyone was just milking it for what they could. So I think that this is was expected from anyone who's been in the industry. They knew that this content free for all was going to dry up. And so then it comes back to quality of storytelling, quality of content, quality of talent. But you're dealing with an industry where it's gone through so many yo-yos between the pandemic, between right productions being on hold with that and to content go, 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 to now things are being cut, to really looking at trying to do and only thinking about the first season and, and a lot of showrunners and folks aren't thinking about building out a 10 season type of program like it's just things have shifted and changed and I think the the reality is I don't think we're it's ever going to settle not in the near term there is not going to be a new normal in any short term it's going to be hey let's evolve and change with the way that this world goes and I think that's everyone's been kind of waiting and holding their breath for things to settle I don't think it's I don't think it's going to settle no not anytime soon because I mean you you've you know cited a cult YouTube, but then also TikTok and like you know Doug Shapiro, former uh, Turner you know Warner Media executive, did this blog post right before the holidays where he talked about this idea of like going from peak TV to infinite TV, and and the idea there is you know not only is there still traditional TV and streaming and like just all of the shows and movies available there, but there's TikTok and there's YouTube and there's the lower production costs. If you have a you know phone with a okay camera, you can make a version of a TV show that maybe just is on TikTok or YouTube. But for some people, that's like fine enough. Steven Soderbergh's shot movies on a phone. So there's a lot that can be accomplished there. And it feels like, I mean, obviously there's the question around TikTok of, does TikTok stay in business in the U.S. Uh, through 2023 or not? Um, does the government, you know, ban it? Um, or, you know, 
force it to make any changes that significantly degrade the service for its users. But even then, it doesn't feel like TikTok's made its big play yet when it comes to like how, you know, what we just saw with YouTube with the NFL Sunday ticket. Like it feels like TikTok at some point is on a path towards it's going to be in position to need to do something like that to really compete and not just be the thing, you know, people talk about of like, well, the new generation is spending their time on this shiny new thing. Cause there's always going to be another shiny new thing for a second. Last year was be real. I think mm-hmm. the <laughs> off that. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but do you have any expectations for like how TikTok figures into the market this year, this, this broader entertainment market we've been talking about? Yeah. I think TikTok still has a lot of growing up to do a lot of the things that you would like. So thinking about the ways that TikTok monetizes, let's start there, right? And if they monetize off of advertising, um, they still don't have a lot of those standard things you would expect. uh, If you are a brand expecting to buy in a digital platform to be able to have some of the innovation and tools and capabilities that Facebook and Google or YouTube have offered for years, and even Snapchat has offered. So there's a lot of like basic things that they need to start working on ad measurement uh, being one, and brand safety being a massive one, massive one, that it's still a little bit there. been talking to some brand executives who've been buying on TikTok, and they just feel like the their results are not reliable. So it, it's, it's, not, it's not gotten to a point where it's um, evolved and matured, where as an advertiser, you, you want to be able to trust that and to be able to spend money there. However, brands are still going there because it's still the nice, shiny carrot, right? The new shiny toy that's out in the marketplace today. And so they feel like from a creativity standpoint that they should be there to be able to reach those audiences. But in a world where you have limited media ad dollars and not as much discretionary spend to to experiment, I think we're going to see a little bit of a dip with TikTok unless they make some quick changes pretty fast. Uh, I think, yeah, I think that's my perspective, at least from an ads perspective. I think the other element too is that you saw a lot of backlash with uh, with TikTok creators saying they're not monetizing, which is directly related to the ad model, right? Because the way TikTok makes money is through ads and the way that you know creators make money is through through their content being monetized, and until they figure that out, you're going to have a lot of creators who are feeling like, well, this may be a fun place for me to sit for a while, but it's not necessarily where I would, as a creator, to build out my creator economy, right, and to create build out my creator monetization platforms, and then they're going to look to other places to do that. I feel like the place that TikTok has probably made the biggest dent is in Facebook's business in their digital ad business and in, with Instagram, um, you know, but they, there needs to be some further innovation done to in, in, in the ad space to make that work for them and to make that work for the creators. The thing with TikTok is that you don't have a thousand creators that are just, you know, crushing it and, and ruling the platform. You have hundreds of thousands of creators who are, who are creating maybe one-time, two-time type of content where it becomes viral and interesting. And that becomes a little bit difficult to manage, I think, as an entertainment platform, 
right? And even if you look at like Charlie D'Amelio, who was like one of the original TikTokers who rose to fame and her trying to move it into more of an entertainment platform with her and her family, they haven't had much success in being able to do that. So if you think about it being a place where it grooms talent, uh, you know, I I think it becomes a little bit more, not questionable, but it still is, it's still evolving and maturing. So I think that's one thing to note. I think if you think about like the content, maybe that with some of the creators who are doing really well, for example, Mr. Beast, and he's always the example, (laughs) it's insane, right? One of his shows can garner more viewership than the Super Bowl. Like, right? One of his like videos can do that. Um, he's, He's monetizing in insane ways. He's building out burger businesses. And because of his platform, and think about it, it's a marketing platform, the guy can launch a burger business in like a day and just say, hey guys, go order from DoorDash and Uber Eats. And there you go. Mr. Beast Burgers is there or his chocolate business or whatever it may be that, you know, he has a built-in audience who is tuned in, engaged. And not only are they creating content, but they're, they're you know, they're building out themselves as entrepreneurs, as IP platforms. So if you think about that, like customer flywheel, that every media and entertainment company is, whether they admit it or not, wish they had Disney's customer flywheel. IP, IP that takes you to the theaters, IP that takes you into the theme parks, that makes you buy that lunchbox and bed sheets and, and brings you back time and time again. Uh, by the way, expensive to build. That's why it's tough for everyone to do that. But Amazon wants that, to, you know, and that everyone's kind of fine for that. If you take that down to like, an individual level, Mr. Beast is doing that, right? He's creating the content, he's creating the experiences, he's creating the merch, and that's the evolution of the creator economy. And I know he's one example that everyone uses, but there's hundreds of others that are doing the same thing. And so where are these creators that are now creating compelling content that people are turning on on a regular basis, creating merch, whether it's like beauty lines or, you know, apparel lines or whatever it may be, and being able to bring audiences with them to whatever platform they go, it becomes really interesting to watch. So I, I think that's the, you know, fascinating element that's that's another factor that's shifting in, in this whole overall content entertainment space. But at the end of the day, people want to be entertained, right? And so for TikTok, they really need to think about that. Right. So for TikTok to get to that next level, is there aim to compete with Netflix? I don't know. I don't know if that's what they're shooting for. Um, however, what everyone is shooting for is time. Our time. And if you factor gaming into that as well, right? Like people always kind of forget about that too, but people are spending a lot of time gaming. They're also spending a lot of time watching gaming content whether that's on Twitch or YouTube. And so that's, talk about Gen Z background noise, that's what they're turning on. Right. Gaming related. But then there's gaming the financial content. side of it. Because even like, I mean, esports, like Alex Lead, uh, one of my colleagues, has you know been reporting on how like the esports industry is also in a bit of a correction where sure people are, you know, watching esports, you know, competitions and all of that, but the money isn't there. And there's, you know, the real, there's the realization from venture capital firms that 
oh, we're not going to get the return on our investment, so we're not going to pour as much money in. The the brands aren't spending as much. Like I think he just reported on uh, BMW, you know, saying it's not you know marketing against esports anymore at all, and it feels like there's like the push pull across the board right now is where people are spending their attentions and how to get someone to be spending a proportional amount of money. Cause like you mentioned, Mr. Beast, he spends millions of dollars on single YouTube videos. And so on the TV and streaming side of things, we're talking about trying to rein in costs. Meanwhile, he's raising, you know, the costs of his production. Um, I believe his company's profitable but he's also been pretty vocal about like he doesn't really care about turning a profit like every dollar he makes he wants to then reinvest into Into the content content. which Mm -hmm. works especially if you diversify into you know burgers and chocolate and all these other businesses um but at the same time like how sustainable is that when it comes to like the media arm specifically but i guess we'll have to see we'll get a better sense at least this earnings season so i have to check in with you after earnings season to see um, what you make of the market at that moment but Eunice, really appreciate you coming on it's always a pleasure talking with you thanks tim uh always fun we could keep going right And thank you for listening to the Digiday Podcast. Please don't forget to share this episode with someone who you think would enjoy it. You can even rate us on Apple Podcasts if you like. We'll be back next week with another episode.